Thanks, Janelle. Did I mention that Malachi is a challenging book? Uh, you might like to keep your Bible open there if, if you have one uh, with you. Uh, the prophet Malachi, he speaks God's word to a people whose dreams have been shattered. And, and of course, you, you may know that Malachi, it's the last book in the Old Testament. So the last of the Old Testament prophets, a final word from God before John the Baptist and Jesus enter the scene of the the big Bible storyline. So it's right for us to read these short four chapters in Malachi and then imagine 400 plus years of silence from God before we get to the New Testament. Malachi speaks God's word to God's people who have finally returned from living in exile. If you think back, you remember there were the Israelites who were rescued from slavery in Egypt by the Lord and they were brought into the promised land. And there was that real high point where Solomon built the grand temple and Israel were a magnificent, really a world power. But it wasn't long before the people weren't living the Lord's way. And as a result, they were kicked out of God's place for their unfaithfulness. Well, they're back. Finally, after many years living in exile, they're back home at last and they had high hopes, as you would expect. That the temple, Solomon's temple that was destroyed, restored Uh, rebuilt city walls, temple worship finally back underway again and in some sense a return to the glory days of old when Solomon had that grand temple of old. God's people back in God's place living under God's rule with the hope of great things to come. But you imagine this Yes, it's 70, it's 80 years or so after their return and actually not much has really changed. They're not a grand world power like before. They're, they're just a pokey little nation living under Persian rule. They pay taxes to support Persia's military campaigns and the rich and powerful locals are as corrupt as ever. If they had a restored temple and temple worship was, was underway, but it wasn't like the old days and the glory of the Lord hasn't returned to the temple as was promised in Ezekiel 43. And so the context of this little book that comes at the very end of the Hebrew scriptures is unfulfilled expectations and shattered dreams. And we read that verse 1, a a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. You see if your Bible's there in the footnote, Malachi means my messenger. And apart from that, we really know nothing about this bloke Malachi, except that he brings a weighty word to God's people. Just look at the Lord's first word, to his people in this context. It's there in verse 2 we read, I have loved you, says the Lord. Uh, God is going to have some very heavy things to say in this book, Malachi, uh, as we look at it over the coming weeks. But it's this truth that he loves his people 
It's that truth that lies at the heart of his relationship with them. The Lord has a covenant relationship with his people that he's committed himself to them, to love them and be their God no matter what else happens. So the fact that they went into exile in the first place for living unfaithfully to the Lord and the fact that even now they're back in the land, they're struggling to be faithful to him, that does not stop the Lord from loving his people. The Lord's covenant love for his people, it's the big idea, if you like, that will shape everything that he says in Malachi. Uh, If you've got kids, do you say this to them sometimes? I know that we do. When one of them has done the wrong thing, we'll sit them down and we'll say, look, we're not having this hard word with you because we don't like you. We're having this hard word with you because actually we love you. Uh, If we didn't care about you, we wouldn't bother and we wouldn't have the conversation. The reason for the hard words to Israel, God's people of old in Malachi, is that God loves his people and he wants nothing more than to be in relationship with them. You um, heard the story of Christina a teenage girl from Brazil who desperately wanted to, to move to Rio, the, the capital. Uh, you know, wanting to spread her wings, looking for fun and, and adventure. Early one morning, she shot through. She, she ran away from home uh, and headed straight for Rio. And when her mum discovered what had happened, she was obviously devastated, but she knew uh, what her daughter was up to. But Christina's mum also knew that she would find it very difficult to get work in Rio and that the only sort of work she could easily find would be prostitution. So her mum, she headed straight for the city to find her daughter. And after searching for some time, her mum decided to make copies of photos of herself. And you picture the little Polaroid. And on the back, she wrote a message. But before going home, she, she posted this photo in, in all of the seedy pubs and the, the bars and brothels that she could find all over the city. Christina couldn't find work and she did turn to prostitution. And she wanted to leave Rio, but she felt, and you can imagine this, can't you? She felt that she couldn't go home, not, not after what she'd done. Uh, Sometime later, she was in one of those places where her mum had been and she did notice one of those photos. And she, she grabbed it and noticed the message on the back. And she read this, Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, please come home. And she did. Uh, God's love for his people means he wants nothing more than to be in relationship with them. No matter how bad you've been. And so his message to the Israelites of old in Malachi, his message to each one of us today, whatever you have done, whatever you have become, please come home. And home's not, you know, the promised land. They were living there. Homes coming to relationship with the true and living God. 
This is why God sends that bloke Malachi, my messenger, to his people, even though they are a mess in terms of their relationship with God. I have loved you, is God's word to his people. And it's the same message of love, isn't it, that lies at the heart of the the good news of Jesus. But you reckon uh, the the response to God's declaration of his love is surprising in verse 2? I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Uh, 70, 80 years of resettlement in what was uh, the province of Judah. Life wasn't living up to expectations. And so they doubted God's love. Life hadn't turned out the way they had hoped or dreamed. You say you love us, God, (laughs) but how? Life sucks. I guess they wondered whether following the Lord was really worth it. Some of you might know the writer Philip Yancey. His books were popular when I was a kid. Um, He said in just one terrible week, two people called on successive days to talk to him about his books. Uh, The first was a youth pastor. He just found out that his wife was dying of AIDS. How can I possibly talk to my youth group about a loving God after what has happened to me? The next day, Yancey got a call from a blind man who several months beforehand had invited a recovering drug addict into his home as an act of mercy. But he'd recently discovered that this drug addict was having an affair with his wife under his own roof. Why is God punishing me for trying to serve him? Both men rang Philip Yancey about their shattered dreams. Where, is a, where does a loving God fit into this? And some of you, of course, you can share your stories of, of shattered dreams. There's so many, aren't there? I married a Christian wanting to honour and obey God, but my marriage is now a mess. We don't get along. We keep hurting each other. What's the go? We brought up our kids to trust and follow Jesus. We prayed for them often. But one has rebelled. He or she wants absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. I just got married. I was so excited. That was before my partner got sick. They're not the same person that they used to be. We fight a lot and we don't often have fun. I've got this mental illness. I didn't think it could happen to me. I can't cope like I used to. I struggle to think positively about things. Uh, I'm single. Uh, I'd really love uh, to get married, but I want to honour God and and find a Christian partner. But but I'm getting older. I don't want to be alone. Why won't God give me a partner? And on and on and on and on and on we could go with examples. How does God respond to those whose dreams have been shattered, like the Israelites who had resettled in their homeland. This is not all it was cracked up to be. You see the second half, uh, halfway through verse 2 into verse 3. We read there, Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob 
but Esau I have hated. I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. You may recall uh, Jacob's name was changed to Israel and he had those 12 sons and, and his family line became the Israelites. God's sovereign grace is sure proof that he truly loves Israel. Sovereign grace because God freely chooses to love his people for no other reason than he simply wishes to love them. The Apostle Paul brings Malachi up in Romans chapter 9. And in verse 11 to 13, he says this. The chapter reads, Yet before the twins were born, Jacob and Esau, uh, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, that is Rebecca the mum, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's the doctrine of election. We don't like talking about it. It's challenging, but it's wonderful. When we think of God's sovereignty, we think of God being in control, don't we? like a a master chess player perhaps moving the pieces around the board. But but often when the Bible speaks of of God's sovereignty, it speaks of God's choice to love us. And when you think of it, love is the entire opposite of being in control. We don't think of control freaks as being loving, do we? Control freaks tend to abuse power. They're manipulative, that they may force people to do what they want them to do. But while God, the God of the Bible, is sovereign, he's in control of all things, he's no control freak. He exercises his sovereignty to love us. Love is not about forcing people into relationship. Love gives others the freedom to choose relationship. Love risks rejection. And that is how the Lord chooses to relate to us. He freely invites us to love him by loving us. How have you loved us? Say God's people of old. God had already proved his love To Israel, he chose Jacob over Esau. Not just as a one-off action, but an ongoing commitment to Jacob and his descendants. God's choice didn't depend on either Jacob or Esau's actions. God's love for the Israelites, God's people of old, was entirely undeserved. God's love is gracious. And you know in the schoolyard how this works out, don't you, relationships? They're conditional. I'll be your friend if. That is not how God relates to his people. And we struggle with this, don't we? Uh, How could God choose Jacob and not Esau? 
Uh, even before they were born. How is that even fair? How could God love Jacob and hate Esau? What does that even mean in verse 3 when it says, but Esau I have hated? I reckon uh, that use of love and hate is is a literary device here. And Jesus uses it in a similar way in Luke 14 where he says, if anyone would come after me, and does not hate his father or mother. He's not saying you must hate your mum and dad to to follow him, but that to follow him we must be prepared to love him more than even those we love most. The, The emphasis here in Malachi is not so much on how God hates Esau, but on how much more God loves Jacob. And Jacob has done absolutely nothing to earn it. In Romans 9, Paul's anticipating our reaction to this. How is that fair? And he says in verse 14 and, uh, to 16, what, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now we may think, how can God punish some and not others? But to ask that question is to misunderstand the nature of grace. What's so wonderful, what's so amazing about grace is that God doesn't give us the bad things we deserve, but the incredibly good things we don't deserve. Your life's dreams may be shattered at some time or another. Maybe that's your reality at the moment. And when they are, when that's your situation, it can be devastatingly painful can't it it's appropriate to cry out to the Lord in your pain to ask God where he is in all of this and Job and the Psalms give us a vocabulary to do that but if we ever doubt that God truly loves us in the midst of our shattered dreams our unfulfilled expectations God's grace in choosing us is sure proof of his love. Some preacher years ago, uh, his wife suddenly died. And after she died, in a sermon, he admitted that he didn't understand this life that we're living. But he understood even less how people facing loss can abandon faith. Abandon it for what, he said. You people in the sunshine may believe the faith, but we in the shadow must believe it. We have nothing else. Edom, they were the descendants of Esau. And in verses 4 and 5, even though God destroys Edom, they believe they can change things themselves. You see, verse 4, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But God makes it clear they'd be deluded if they really thought that way. Verse 4 and 5. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. 
They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. The point is that God's people of old will see what is going on with Edom over here and affirm God's love for them. Verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. God's people were to look at Edom and say, there goes I, but for the grace of God. At a time when Israel wondered whether God was powerful enough to bring change to their lives, he assures them his power extends to the whole world and that he's powerful enough to fulfill his purposes for his people. Now, this afternoon, I don't know how far removed this feels for you, but we can be sure of God's love no matter the mess of life because of the cross of Christ. And the question comes, doesn't it, if election is the subject, how do I know that God has chosen me? Well, you come to him. You come to him and you pray, God, help my unbelief. Help me trust. Help me understand. Help me understand the evidence. Help me live for you. And whatever you have done, whatever you have become, you come to him. That's the external call for everyone. Come and trust in Jesus. You see how much he loves you by sending his son to die on the cross in your place. And you hear the message and he moves us by his spirit that we might believe, that we might come to him and know his love eternally. Now, we, um, we're going to have an opportunity to respond to God's love uh, this afternoon by celebrating the Lord's Supper together, a, a little meal in miniature, where we remember Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And as we respond to his love, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians 2, uh, 8 to 10. It's a great memory verse, isn't it? For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. So that no, not by works, so that no one can boast. There's plenty to think about there, isn't there? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Why don't we pray? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this little book, Malachi, uh, for your messenger that went to your people some 400 years before Jesus entered history. And Lord, it must have been so hard to know that you loved them as they were sort of practicing worship in a dodgy temple out the back of nowhere, feeling forgotten, missing the glory days that they heard of from old. And Lord, this afternoon we confess that sometimes we wonder whether you love us as we live through and observe the pain of this world 
But we thank you that we have a very clear reminder of your love for us in the gospel of your son. Uh, That you're a God who loved us so much that you would rather die for us than live without us. And Lord, as we struggle to believe, we pray that you would help. We know we need your help. And so we pray that uh, you would help us pursue you even in our doubt and that you would give us a growing confidence that you, the covenant-making God, are reliable, unlike us, and we can collapse into you. Help us do that now, we pray. Amen.